Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Entrepreneurs and hosted by Pearson Crutcher and Jay Healy. The Society of Entrepreneurs is a membership organization founded to promote entrepreneurship and provide education and resources to Memphis business owners. In this podcast, we'll have a series of interviews with accomplished business owners and entrepreneurs in Memphis, Tennessee. There are so many great entrepreneurs in Memphis and their stories need to be told. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. We're excited today to have our conversation with Phil Coop, who is the founder and chairman of NSAFE. NSAFE is a environmental consulting firm founded in Memphis in 1980 with just a handful of employees, but it's grown over time to have multiple offices around the country and over 400 employees. NSAFE works with companies and governments around the world to provide solutions for any environmental problems they may have. You will see very quickly that this is Phil's passion and his expertise. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. I'm so excited about today's podcast with Phil Coop, Chairman of the Board of NSAFE. I have to say personally that I had an experience with Phil about 10 years ago. My daughter was in an environmental AP class, and we went out so that he could tell her about his company and what it meant and how what he did on a daily basis. And I remember getting in the car to go home, and Katie Crutcher was so excited about your job. She was like, he has the coolest job. It is a science experiment every single day. So I can't wait to talk to you today and to hear some of those science experiments that you get to be involved with. So welcome, Phil. Glad to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, Phil, for coming. We appreciate you being here. We always like to start with just a background of you personally. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Well, uh, this is probably boring to everybody, but I will tell you that I Grew up in Bell Buckle, Tennessee. Wow. There might be five people who know where that <laughs> is. Lived on a farm in Bell Buckle. How far away from Memphis is that? It's about three and a half hour drive. And it's south of Nashville, correct? Just south of Nashville, that's right. Very cool. And what would you say your growing up days were like? Your father, was he an entrepreneur or was he a farmer, I guess? He was a farmer and a horse trainer. And then later on, he worked for the United States Department of Agriculture, the uh, Horse Protection Act. He was into a lot of the horse stuff. And I grew up on the farm and decided I would move away when I graduated. I didn't want to haul another bale of hay as long as I live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that it certainly explains your love of horses today. It for does. Sure, it does right. Every time we talk, there's horse in the conversation for sure. So, And lots of cool trips that you need to talk about on horseback as well. So where did you go to college and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, I was lucky enough to go to a prep school that's located in Bellwackle, called the Webb School of Bellwackle. When I was a senior, there were colleges recruiting people. I wanted to go to Duke. That was my great goal and got in. But the headmaster made me apply to some other colleges, and one of them, Harvard, accepted me. I remember writing them a letter, turning them down, and they called and said, people don't turn us down. (laughs) So they invited me up to spend a weekend in Boston, and I fell in love with Boston and Harvard, and that's where I wound up going to school, and that's where I developed my love of environmental sciences. Awesome. So what was your degree in? I have a very unusual degree. I have a double degree in American history and chemistry. That is an unusual combination. And I still remain interested in both. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. That's very cool. So tell us a little bit about NSAFE and how you started that and how you came back to Memphis because you weren't here. No, well, we came back to Memphis 
I shouldn't say we came back to Memphis. I'd actually never been to Memphis, but we came to Memphis in 1973 because I thought I wanted to attend medical school because there was no way in the 1970s to actually practice environmental sciences. It simply wasn't a career. So as a fallback, I thought, well, I'd like to go to medical school. But while working here with a laboratory that did work, I was able to start dabbling in environmental sciences and decided I wanted to go that way. Meanwhile, my wife had gotten a job at FedEx and her blood runs purple and she's not leaving <laughs> Memphis at all. Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> By 1979, which I'd been out of college about eight years, I met my partner, Wendell Knight, and he was very interested in hazardous materials and safety. I was very interested in environmental work and none of us could find a way to express that occupationally. So we started a company to do it. And was there a project that had you start the company to meet the needs of a project or you just put your shingle out and said, okay, we're an environmental safety consulting company? There was no project. It's amazing to put your shingle out, sit down at a desk in front of a phone and then wonder what happens next. What did happen yeah. next? What was the <laughs> first <us>. project? <laughs> there were several that happened right away. But you may recall in 1980 was a time of really interest in the environmental world by politicians. There were a number of incidents, Love Canal that hit in the late 70s, Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught on fire. There are all these incidents that were one after another. And so our announcement that we were going to be an environmental and safety company did attract some attention because there was so much interest in it. The phone rang actually pretty quickly. And our very first project was with a Fortune 5 company at the time who said, we have no idea how to handle what's coming at us in terms of new government regulations and new requirements to meet environmental practices. Would you help? And we took on a project that took us to seven states in the very first year we're in business. So it really took off very quickly. So environmental in those seven states, what were you doing? Were you looking at water? Or were you looking at land? or Hazardous waste management, which remains one of our key specialties. How to manage it safely, how to dispose of it safely, how to avoid generating it in the first place. Those were all very, very important priorities to our client. We jumped in with both feet. Most of your employees then are chemists, is that correct, or engineers? or The company is about one-third geologists, about one-third engineers, and about one-third environmental scientists, which would capture our chemists, our biologists, our toxicologists. How many employees total at this Just point? under 400 right now. Wow, that's significant. And offices all across the country too, not just in Memphis. They are. Some of them are small offices, but we very much like to put our expertise geographically close to our clients and their problems. And fortunately, our client base is international, so we put staff close to them. So right now we're running offices from Connecticut to California. Well, I should say New Hampshire to California. New Hampshire's a little further away. <laughs> exactly. I remember a project, the project that Katie was so intrigued by was a city had hired you because there was leakage into their water source from a landfill. And then your employees discovered tracks that they could put across it so that they could find ways to measure in the middle of the landfill. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. <laughs> I know. I recall that project. That was a 10 years ago project. That's right. <laughs> So before I jump into it, maybe it's worth noting that we almost never do the same project twice. And that's very unique about, frankly, the environmental industry. Engineers, for instance, frequently get to design the same plant more than once because there's a demand for it and they become very, very good at that. Typically, we're approached with an environmental problem that is likely to be fairly unique. And so we have to assemble a team to tackle it. 
We actually call it brain power by the hour. On any given project, I might need hydrogeologists or geologists, chemical engineers or civil engineers or a toxicologist or chemist. But we assemble those teams based on what we understand to be the issue and how to go about resolving that issue. So the one you're talking about turned out to be a very interesting problem. A landfill was leaking. It had a hole in the bottom of it, and we had to find that hole. And we used a very sophisticated geophysical techniques that penetrated through the landfill and all the refrigerators and the debris and all the stuff that's in there, and were successful in locating the hole to plug it and protect the groundwater of the neighborhood. So it's just so amazing to think about the huge impact that one project that you do has on everybody in that community. That must give you such a great sense of pride. It does. I think that the impact will vary. Sometimes all we're doing is really working to prevent an issue from occurring in the first place, trying to capture the issue quickly and contain it. Sometimes it's too late by the time we get there and it has already entered the community's water supply or it's entered the surface water or it's contaminated soil where people are living or growing crops. And then, of course, there is an immediate impact because we're, in most cases, able to resolve that risk. Do you have a story about a project that you did that had the biggest impact on the environment or a community? Well, there are certainly several of them in our history. We have one in a northeastern state where a chemical that you would think of as dry cleaning solvent, it was actually metal cleaning solvent, got into the soil and then got into groundwater and then migrated very, very rapidly and was at that time impacting the municipal water supply for hundreds of thousands of people. We've been able to stop the source, contain it, eventually hope to remove it, but right now we have it contained. Hopefully, those water supplies will improve over time. There's a rule in our business that it takes almost as long to fix a problem as it did to create it in the first place. Nothing happens quickly. And do you actually execute those plans and stay with that project for a long time? We will do it both. I think one of the keys to running a service industry, particularly one that involves such sophisticated science, is that we don't have a single business model. We adapt our business model to what the situation requires or what the client wants. So for instance, if you have a problem that you've asked us to solve and you want us to do it turnkey, start at the beginning and end up with a clean site, if you will, we'll do that. If you'd prefer that we only do the investigation part, which we call nailing down the fate and transport and identifying the problem, and then perhaps have a very sophisticated engineering firm come in and design the remedy, that's okay too. We'll be happy to support them. Or maybe we do the engineering and the investigation, but it comes down to brute force. Bring out the yellow iron and start digging or whatever. We might even put that out for bid. But the important thing, I think, is that you have to have an adaptive business model that responds to a particular issue, because as I mentioned earlier, we rarely do the same thing twice. So that makes finding employees very interesting for somebody like you, because you need to find the people that have the expertise in those different areas. So how do you do that? It is extraordinarily difficult. We only want the best and the brightest, the smartest there are. One of the reasons we started opening branch offices, which we started doing 30 years ago, was to be able to attract employees. If we couldn't hire them locally in Memphis where we started, maybe we could hire them in other places. That's certainly true today. But no matter where we find people geographically, 
we're okay with them staying where they are because our projects are scattered geographically. So we're not as tied to a specific geography as perhaps another kind of firm might be. Do you tend to recruit right out of college or do you look for people with experience? We look for people with experience. We do some recruiting out of colleges and we have an internship program with the, with the university. But for the most part, the projects are so difficult and so complex that it's really better to have people with a lot of experience before they join us. But we do have a training program and we bring people up who are recently out of college. And the reason I asked is a lot of people study environmental science in college, and I think it's hard for them to find a job doing a thing that they're passionate about. Let me comment on that because it's very, very interesting. The words environmental science have many interpretations. Of course, for many years, you could not get a degree in it. It was impossible. That's most of us learned by rolling up our sleeves and doing the work. But sometimes people will major in something called environmental sciences that doesn't involve science. And those people are not likely to be attractive employees for us. We're interested in people who've mastered chemistry or physics or engineering or mathematics, who can really take the best science there is and apply it to a problem. People who've majored in environmental sciences that don't involve a lot of science typically would work for perhaps a government agency or perhaps they might become an executive in a company managing us. But we look for good scientists more than anything else. So an actual degree in environmental sciences actually is less important than science you picked up in all those classes that a lot of people avoid. <laughs> right, to understand the rocks that are in the area. As you have all these branches across the country and multiple employees in different places, how do you organize the culture of the firm, get everybody on the same plate? I'd like to maybe answer it this way. The basic business model in our industry for many, many years in order to manage your business and make a profit, was to open offices and then assign that office a profit goal. And that way you were incentivizing the employees and the management of those employees to sort of build a business. We never did that. And very early on in the 80s, people who were consultants to people like us, particularly <laughs> financial people, would comment on how unusual that was. We run the company, no matter whether it's a project in New Hampshire or an employee in San Diego, as a single profit center. And I don't actually know whether offices are making money or not, and I'm not sure that it's particularly relevant. What's relevant is that we're applying the right expertise to the right problem, and the clients like that enough to pay us. So in any given project we're doing, our culture is to assemble the best team regardless of geography. I have a project here in West Tennessee, for instance, where my engineer is from our Charleston, South Carolina office, because he was the right person to do that. So when you run the business that way, it's very easy to build a single culture because everybody's effectively functioning as a single team. Do you get everybody together occasionally? We used to. It's yeah. a little big now. <laughs> we do have a process we call an all-hands meeting every year in March. It used to be a conference call. Now, of course, it's a virtual Zoom. video call. <laughs> right, exactly. And we still do that. But back in the 80s and early 90s, I'd fly everybody into Memphis, but we just don't do that anymore. So we started with two guys waiting for the phone to ring, and we heard the story about 400 employees doing awesome work. Tell us the journey between those two. What were some of the biggest problems, the biggest success, best choices you made along the way? What was the journey of the firm? So this is a story that I think Pearson's probably heard before. I'm ready to hear it again. <laughs> In the 1980s, as I mentioned, there wasn't really an industry. So people reaching out for help didn't have far to go. 
I think as early as 1982 or three, a few years after we started, the U.S. Navy reached out to us and they had a very specific problem. We submitted a proposal and went through a government competition and were selected by the U.S. Navy to do some environmental work for them. And that went on for 83, 84, 85, 86. We loved working with them. The Navy are great people. We have the best Navy in the world, I think. And they were tackling these problems pretty well, but needed help. But they were doing it all over the world. And so in 1988, the U.S. Navy, and we were probably a firm of about 18 or 19 people then. The U.S. Navy, in terms of managing their own issues, realized that they had hundreds of people in various firms working on these issues, and they had a difficulty with consistency. They had a difficulty with quality. They had a difficulty with responsiveness with some of them. So the Navy, unbeknownst to us, decided that they were going to change their model for buying scientific expertise in the environmental world. And they decided to issue five contracts. Each contract was to have a value of $100 million. We're sitting in Memphis, Tennessee with 18 employees. By then, probably a five or six year history of working with the Navy. And we thought, what the heck? So we wrote a proposal and submitted it. That was in 1988. I almost forgot about it. And then in 1989, never will forget this. It's a great story. In the fall of 1989, a friend of mine in Memphis called and said, you're in the Wall Street Journal today. Did you see it? (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I said, no, I have any idea. I didn't even know where to go buy a Wall Street Journal. Finally got my hands on it. It had been announced that the Navy had selected their five contractors, each to receive a $1 million contract. And NSAFE had been named one of those contractors with only 18 employees. You said 1 million, but I think you meant 100 million. 100 million. Wow. And so you can imagine what the next two years were like. We worked seven days a week, 20 hours a day. We started moving from a consultancy by the way, one in which we were having a lot of fun, into a business. I learned I had to have accounting done. I had, <laughs> <laughs> I had to meet all of these audit rules. It was huge. So we hired in administrative staff, people knowledgeable in accounting and contracts, beefed up our technical staff. We began opening offices in cities close to where the Navy worked. The contracts were to be for 10 years. So recognizing that would have such a huge impact on our business, my partners, Jim Speakman, a great guy who's now retired, and I decided we would divide up management of the company. He would take this Navy project, make sure we did a darn good job on that, and I would continue building our commercial practice. And both turned out to be successful. And so after that, it was just off and running. We never slowed down. Can you give an example of what projects you did with the Navy? I think some of them are public enough. One example is the Navy decided to close its shipyard in Charleston, South Carolina. That shipyard had been in operation since the British opened it in the 1760s. Wow. You can imagine just in the course of day-to-day working, stuff happens. And it was a very large shipyard. And the state of South Carolina and the city of Charleston wanted to convert it to industrial usage, maybe even residential. And so we spent a long time. I've forgotten exactly how long, maybe as long as eight years, but we eventually got that property to the point where it could be turned over for commercial usage. Huge project, very large. That's incredible. really is. What you're doing, you must be so proud because what you're doing has got such an impact on this whole world. I mean, and now it's such a common topic to talk about how we can take better care of our earth. Have you just seen a major shift since you've gotten into this career? 
We have, although some of the underlying issues are still there. We have seen it. There's an old story that even if you're not an environmental person, your children will be Mm -hmm. (laughs) or your grandchildren will Mm -hmm. be. That concept of managing the environment safely has thoroughly permeated American business. And I'm just proud of all our customers. They're not doing it because the government requires it. They're doing it because that's the way they want to run their businesses. I think the problem we have now is that America and Europe are pretty committed, but much of the rest of the world isn't. So our customers have to compete with companies that are located in countries that, frankly, either don't care or, more likely, don't have the resources to be able to manage environmental issues. There's actually a phrase in our business that is, environmental protection is the luxury of a rich country. Because it costs money. It costs you either in taking down your profits because you spend money on it, or it costs money to fix things after they occur. It's been a huge culture shift in the last 43 years, no doubt about it. Is it fair to say that most countries that do focus on environmental protection have gotten to the point where they can, and a lot of countries that are growing from a lower level can't focus on it because they need the energy, they need to use coal and gas? I think that's fair. In ways that we don't have to. Absolutely. Interesting example. The World Bank asked us to tackle a project in Azerbaijan about 15 years ago. And we actually opened a small office in Baku to take care of this project. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating project. I could talk about it for hours. (laughs) But we needed to recruit people, staff members to do it. And we recruited in country. And what we found were some of the brightest, best trained people you can imagine People who had gone to universities and studied environmental sciences, who knew hydrogeology, who knew engineering, I could not have asked for better staff, but they couldn't find jobs because the country itself wasn't at a point where that was either an important thing or if it was, they didn't have the resources to do it. They went to put those resources elsewhere. The same thing. We had an office in Kazakhstan for almost 10 years. The staff there were just great. I mean, they were smart as a whip. But it was difficult for them to build careers because of the basic underlying economy they were in. And I think that's improving all over the world. And you'll find that wherever you go. A country that you might not otherwise think will have really well-trained people who are just needing the right opportunity to show that training off. What are some of your biggest concerns today about our environment going forward? When we say environmental these days, it's a very complex field. Think of medicine, for instance. Doctors don't just become generalists. Many of them begin to specialize. The environmental world does that, and we do as well. So our emphasis very much is the impact of chemicals on the environment in particular. There are many issues beyond that I could talk about that aren't necessarily part of our expertise. But clearly, frankly, probably the number one is safe water. Having sufficient water and having that water be clean enough to drink is becoming a problem all over the world. And it's much worse than most of us realize because we only hear about it when the news media decides to bump it up a little bit. Africa's running out of water, running out of clean water, especially. All of us are. And so I think managing water is going to be a huge, huge problem for the future. And we contribute to that because at least when we encounter contaminated water, we know how to fix that. We know how to repair it, make it drinkable again. And that's actually the goal of all our environmental projects that involve contamination to make the water safe to drink. That's the definition of success. We don't always get there, but we can sometimes get close. Climate change clearly is a huge problem. It has rolling environmental issues because of the way the changing climate then affects everything from business 
to ecology. Just a quick example. Farmers in Canada are now fighting weeds that used to only grow in the South. Wow. So think about the impact that has on their behavior, what chemicals they decide to buy and apply to the environment. So that's, of course, a huge problem as well. And then solid waste is a big problem. We have to get to the point where we're maximizing recycling. And so solid waste is a big issue as well. Don't get me started. I could talk all day. How's Memphis doing water-wise? Great. Good. The best water in the world. That's good to know. Yes, <laughs> it is that. So let's just hope it continues to stay that way. I was thinking that as we modernize things, I was talking to somebody that lives in Vermont about solar panels And they were talking about the fact that solar panels giving us great energy, but then you've got to figure out when they've got a certain life cycle. So what do you do with those solar panels when they're no longer functional? What are you going to do with that refuse? The way to resolve those kinds of questions, I think, is to build the concept of environmental quality in all decision-making. Not just at the end when something has to be thrown away, but start at the beginning and build in the cost of that to your product in the beginning. And then you're facing at the front end, not at the back end. There's a famous example out of our business when everybody wanted to recycle aluminum cans, which is a great thing to do. But the industrial process involving the recycling of aluminum cans creates a substantially hazardous waste problem. But nobody was working on that end of it. They were working on the recycling end of it. And so if you build that concept in to all your decision makings, both in business and in your personal life, then you won't get trapped at the end with what are we going to do next? Famous rules of ecology, and one of which is, I think is really important here, there's just no such thing as a free lunch. That's right. Every, every action has consequences. So manage those consequences instead of waiting for them to manage themselves. So using that formula, are you positive about electric vehicles going forward? I own one. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I guess that's the answer. I own one. I think we're probably in an intermediate stage, but the technology's, of course, proven. We don't have the infrastructure to support it. People who are critical of electric vehicles will point out that there are environmental problems involved with mining the metals that go into it. That is absolutely true. A lot of water is used in mining those. Absolutely true. But those things are true of an ice car as well. There's just different metals. So once again, I think we have to figure out how to manage it. And I don't think we did a good job. We launched electric vehicles before we really understood what the impact was going to be, especially for lithium mining and other things. Long term, that might even be a technology that doesn't make it. I mean, hydrogen cars are going to be super when they finally hit the market, for instance, and others as well. Pearson, you and I are learning a lot here, huh? I know, I know. (laughs) It's amazing. And you do think about just the impact. And I know I always think we're talking about some of the more poverty-stricken countries that aren't doing what we're doing with our EPA and keeping everything, but it's all the same ozone. It's just so hard to think in the problem's so big. And I'm just so thankful that there's a Phil Coop out there thinking about those things. There are lots of people. Now, our industry is quite large now. In 1980, when we started InSafe, you probably couldn't point to more than a handful of firms in the country who said we're pure environmental. Now, lots of engineering firms were doing environmental work, geotechnical firms were doing it, but we were pure. Now there are thousands. I heard an estimate recently of 5,000 environmental firms. Now, most of them are small. They're only about 200 with more than 50 employees. Still, that's a big change from 40 years ago. 
I'm going to take this back to some of the questions that we typically ask in a podcast. And one of the things I want to ask you, if somebody came to you and said, I'm thinking about starting a company, what would your advice to them be? Well, I'm no expert in starting a company. I've only done one. (laughs) (laughs) Other people may know a lot more. I think the first thing I would ask is what kind of company? And there's a big difference between a company which is a service organization and one which is making products. And there's further a big difference between a service company that offers a service that everybody wants and needs and one like ours, which is one that you hope you can avoid. I've had customers tell me, we love you. I don't want to ever see you again. (laughs) You're like an insurance company. We hope we never have to file a claim. Exactly. At least with regard to that narrow definition, a service company that is not an impulse buy, clearly success comes from taking ownership in a very powerful way of the issues that your clients are saying they need resolved. You can't do it casually. You've got to be all in. And so when we take on a project and we join our clients' teams, for instance, you might not be able to tell who on that team works for me and who works for the company itself. We're just going to go all in. All in is a great framework. And clients pick up on that quickly. You're either taking ownership and treating this problem as your own, or you're just saying, well, you asked me a question, here's the answer. And there's a huge difference. And that involves an enormous commitment in terms of time and energy and efficiency. Then you come back and you organize your company to meet that need in which you've taken an ownership. So I'm even fond of saying there's not even a single business model that works best. It's whatever works best for that issue, for that client, when you're all in. So was this an instinct for you, or is it things that you learned over time to maximize the impact of the business? I think that, especially with environmental, it's a passion. Nobody has to train me to jump in and solve an environmental problem. I'll lay up nights worrying about it. That's what I'm all about. And I think we tend to attract employees who think the same way. I tell my own staff when I have an opportunity that it's frankly the world's greatest occupation because there's nothing rote or repetitive. You're being challenged every day. And then the science changes every Tuesday. You have to stay stay up to date. Stay up to date. So I think it is there's a passion. Now, if you come into this industry without the passion for environmental, which some people do, that isn't their thing. They still have the passion for the science that they trained in in college. So a person who goes to school to study geology really wants to play with rocks. And I get that. So that's how they buy into it. But it's all about that personal passion. It's less about a job. There's a phrase I sometimes use as well when I do speeches in our industry. It says our staff really, really, really want to come to work every day excited and doing sexy jobs. And they just trust us to pay their mortgages and their auto payments for them (laughs) because that's not why they're working. Certainly, I'd make a lot more money in banking industry or something, but that's not where my passion is. We attract people who think like that. You still had to learn how to run a business. That was tough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any mentors that helped you through that? Well, I'm not sure mentor is the right word, but we did make a really good hiring decision early on. We decided we really needed to have people who knew how to run a business about 1990 or so when we're starting to grow the company. And we did some great hires. I've got the same CFO today I had back then, and he knows how to run a business. There he you knows go. how to send out invoices <laughs> and collect bills. Do payroll. And he's yeah. great at it. You know? <laughs> and that's important too. We have a whole back office staff, HR, contracts, all those sorts of people who really know what they're doing and make the rest of us look really good. 
very fun place to work. So you've had the business for over 40 years. Can you explain what the succession plan has been to keep the business growing as you reduce your roles and responsibilities? Now, that's where you need a mentor. That's where you really need some help. For many years, there's a consulting firm in New York that actually consults with companies like us, mainly financially, help us benchmark our businesses, understand what the problems are, share other solutions for it. And we would have a big conference every year. More than once, I've appeared on panels or given talks at this conference. And once the panel was on ownership transition, then these people were on a table talking about how they were doing it. And it got to me. And I said, one important thing to understand is sometimes owners don't want to be transitioned. <laughs> and everybody kind of looked at me like I was crazy. Later on in those meetings, one of the principals gave us a speech. And he said very slowly, most firms fail in the first transition of ownership. And that's both a cultural, business, and financial situation. Some owners want to go to the Riviera, so they've got to sell out. Some owners are too old to run the business or aren't keeping up with the times or whatever. And I left that meeting thinking that's not going to happen to us. We, in fact, have transitioned management already. I've had a new CEO. I say new. He's been CEO for 10 years. <laughs> new to me. But we reached into the organization and found someone who had just the right skills and mentored him into that position. We've also transitioned ownership, and we're transitioning it to our employees. We describe ourselves as a multi-generational employee-owned firm. And right now, 85% of the company is owned by employees who are not associated with original ownership. And we're going to continue that. And I think you have to practice that. Another interesting thing some of your listeners may be interested in to listen to is that Private equity now has a huge role in the economy of the United States, maybe worldwide. They used to ignore us. You don't get rich in our industry. Our margins are 12%, 14% in a good year. These companies are looking for 30% margins. But then in 2008, when the recession hit, 12% margin looked pretty good. <laughs> we were still doing fine. And that's still the case. So now, one avenue that happens to companies like us is to move into private equity where, bless their hearts, their object is not to protect the environment, but to make money. And so it doesn't work that well, interestingly enough. Some of them have succeeded, some haven't, but that's not going to be our model. Our model is going to be remain employee-owned. My management team, who's now becoming owners, will, when they get to my age, be transitioning and hopefully to another generation. And we're working very hard at that. We work on it all the time. And what's your current role? I'm chairman of the board, and then I'm 100% technical in terms of what I do for a living. I manage multi-million dollar remediation contracts right now. I love it. It is very clear that this is your passion and that you really love what you do. What do you do outside of work for fun? Oh, well, <laughs> Pearson, you've heard this before. I don't want to bore everybody, but I'm very fortunate in that my wife and I have the same hobby, and that's horseback riding. And we do it all over the world. We have engaged very interesting rides all over South America, Europe. A few years ago, I finally brought that to a penultimate. My wife didn't go, but two of my friends here in Memphis and some other people got together and we crossed the Andes on horseback from Chile to Argentina, crossing at 13,000 feet above sea level. That's very challenging. Getting to the age now where we don't do that so much anymore, <laughs> but that's been our passion for many years. It's been great that Kay and I can do it together. That's wonderful. And then when you see the mountains and the Andes and you think, I'm doing what I can to protect this. And I just love that. We were riding in Ecuador once and it was a small group, about five of us. We were up in the mountains and came across this open dump, trash dump. 
I got on a horse and looked at it, and the guide was very concerned. She was a native Ecuadorian. And I told her, I know what industry is producing this. I can tell by looking at it what it is. And she took it as an assignment to go off and do something. We took her photographs and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's a busman's holiday story. But it is important to protect those wild areas that we see when we're riding. For sure. Because there aren't many of them left. That is amazing. What do you like about Memphis these days? We came to Memphis when there were only four restaurants in town. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think I can name them. Four Flames and <laughs> Justine's and Hugo's. And now, of course, we love to go out to eat and enjoy the music and the food. It's just great. Memphis has grown up in the last 40 years, and we think the town's just really super. And the diversity we have, sometimes I don't think we appreciate ourselves how successfully Memphis is managing a diverse economy and a diverse sociology or society. And we really appreciate that a lot. It is. It's a great town. I have a question that we like to ask every single person on the podcast. So I want your opinion. Do you think that entrepreneurs are born or taught? Can you teach somebody to be an entrepreneur or are you born that way? I think you could easily teach someone to do it. I think I was taught how to run an entrepreneurial company. But I don't know that you can teach someone to have the passion in the first place. It seems to me that it's that initial spark says, I don't want to sit at the desk doing the same thing every day, working for somebody else, and I have a passion for X. Then moving from that passion, which might be a very personal thing, something you're born with, into a business is something you'd be taught. And you probably need to be taught. I didn't know what double entry bookkeeping was. I'm not sure I still do. <laughs> but, but it's pretty important to running a business. For what it's worth, I think that's probably how I'd answer that question. It's a good one. Memphis is your home, and one of the requirements of being a member of the society is that you've given back to the community. I mean, you've given back a lot environmentally, for sure, but are you involved in the community? I am. Insafe doesn't make a big deal out of this. You will not find our name plastered on a lot of walls. We actually prefer some anonymity there. But the company's passion, which I very much support, is a childhood education, especially in the sciences. And we very quietly support that in many different ways and many different issues. You mentioned Memphis. And now that we have offices in so many cities, we express that in places other than Memphis as well. And it's only fair to our employees, programs in our Dallas office, programs in our California office, et cetera. And we think that's very, very important. Kay and I ourselves aren't big on having our names plastered on buildings or anything either. But we're very much supporters of that part of Memphis that needs support that doesn't have multimillionaires writing checks to support them. So you'll find us behind MIFA, Mid-South Food Bank, and things like that, which are important to us because I think somebody needs to help buck up that part of Memphis and help build that safety net. And that's what we support personally. It's wonderful. Okay, tell us one thing that our listeners will be surprised to learn about Phil Coop. Oh, that's an unfair question. <laughs> I think it's a great question. <laughs> My life's an open book. He did mention horses already. Riding a horse across the Andes is <laughs> yeah, probably a pretty good answer, but I've already gotten you to say that. I don't know what else there is. I'm very supportive of my wife, who's an artist. Oh, yeah. Very, very talented. Never miss a chance to promote her artwork because she does a really great job. I don't know what else it would be. I think there's an interesting story to tell about getting on a helicopter in New York. Weren't you late? going to the airport. Oh, you're going to do that story? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Gosh, how did you know that story? You told me oh, did 15 I tell years ago. <laughs> so I have to be really careful here, but it is an interesting story. One of our first major assignments was to help clean up a place in Michigan 
whose name was Tar Lake. Oh, oh nice. <laughs> Can't you just imagine? Yeah. yeah, no. A financial entity, which I will not name, loaned money on this piece of property. And when the, the debtor didn't pay his bills, they foreclosed on it. So they got stuck with Tar Lake. And I was working on it. The company's very large, very famous at the time. The CEO of that company demanded a briefing. I flew up to New York, sitting in the 90th floor conference room of this very, very large Fortune 10 company, being pestered with questions about why I was spending so much money, <sighs> how much was it going to cost? And it eventually cost $27 million. So he had a right to ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that he paid that much to us, but that's what it eventually cost to remediate. In any case, I had a flight back to Memphis. I looked down at my watch and he caught me looking at my watch and he said, do you have some place to be more important? And I went, no, sir. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm okay here, but I have a flight. He's don't worry about your flight. What time is it? So I told him what time and we continued on. I kept looking at my watch. I was going to miss my flight. And finally, he was satisfied. And he said, come with me. We walked out of the conference room, up a set of steps to the roof of Skyscraper in New York, where the company helicopter was waiting on me. And they put me in the company helicopter and we flew me over to LaGuardia and landed me right beside the plane. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe you remember that yes, story. Yes, yes. Well, it's a good one. It's a good story. That wouldn't happen today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think that your work is very valued. There you sure. go. Well, this has been so much fun. I could sit here and talk to you all day, but I do know that you need to get back to work saving some other environmental issues. Thanks for having me. Enjoy it. Absolutely. Great conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this roundtable discussion. If you'd like to hear more about any of the participants, please look at our show notes. 